Section 1 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 1, Part 1 Verena and Her Daughters. The Empress's apartments in the sacred palace remained empty for four years after the virtuous Pulcheria had been laid in her marble sarcophagus. The Emperor Marcian was aged and feeble, and, as Pulcheria had guarded, even in marriage, the sanctity of her vow of chastity, there was none who might plausibly be regarded as heir to the throne. It was such a situation as Constantinople loved, and the thousands of soldiers, eunuchs, nobles, and ladies who dwelt in the vast palace, and the tens of thousands of idlers who lounged under the arcades of the great square or chattered on the benches of the hippodrome, had a large field for speculation. Their fate, they knew, was in the hands of one man, the commander of the imperial guards, Asper. He was an Arian, or Unitarian, and could not hope to occupy the throne, which would soon be at his disposal. The citizens of Constantinople were at least as wanton and passionate as those of Rome had been, but they were fiercely devoted to the sound doctrine of the Trinity, and they would have flung themselves against the bronze gates and marble walls of the palace if an Arian had ventured to don the purple. So senators and senators' wives indulged their conflicting hopes and paid their servile reverence to the dying monarch and the vigorous barbarian commander. Marcian died in the year 457, not without a superfluous rumor of poison, and expectation rose to the height of fever when the worn frame was entombed with all the rich ceremony of the eastern court. Then there came the first of a long series of surprises and dramatic successions, which were to enliven Byzantine history for many a century. Asper announced that his steward, Leo, a tribune, or subordinate officer of the troops, was to receive the imperial crown. A barbaric soldier and his wife were to occupy the golden throne, and all the nobility of Constantinople hastened to kiss their purple slippers. Leo the Isaurian is one of those quite unromantic figures which the restless waves of Roman life often washed into the world of romance. One of the many raw highlanders who had set out from Asia Minor to make their fortune in the glittering metropolis of the East. A few years of useful military service had won for him the rank of tribune and the confidence of the commander and Asper thought that he could rely on the docility and gratitude of the big, simple-featured soldier. Wholly illiterate, with no larger experience than the control of Asper's servants, a man of rough, hairy face, powerful frame, and blunt ways, he suddenly found himself transferred to a throne that gleamed, as few thrones did, with the sands of Indus and the adamant of Golconda. His wife, the Empress Verena, shares alike the earlier obscurity and the sudden elevation to the extraordinary splendor of the Byzantine court. 
we know nothing of her nationality or extraction and as the only relatives who gather about her when her hand dispenses the gold and the favours of a great empire are just as obscure as herself we may be sure that her origin was humble enough a soldier like leo would select his mate in a lowly world and we shall see later that verena permitted no scruple to restrain either her passion or her ambition but there was personality in the new empress an able and vigorous intelligence a masterful ambition a virile tenacity of purpose and an equally virile disdain of scruples and of priests in the pursuit of her ambition she must have been much younger than her husband who was nearly sixty years old she not only survived him for more than a decade but she filled that decade with the most spirited adventures and she admitted or attracted a lover after the death of her husband in his seventy-fourth year it is one of the most singular features of verena's story that she remains almost as obscure and insignificant during the seventeen years in which she reigned with her husband as she had been before her elevation yet in her later years reveals a character of remarkable vigor and great interest we have therefore little concern with the reign of leo and will rather make ourselves acquainted with the imperial world in which the byzantine empresses will move new rome or constantinople had been founded by constantine on the site of the more ancient city of byzantium and is so faithfully replaced by the modern city that its situation needs little description it spread over the triangular point of europe which runs to a tongue between the golden horn and the sea of marmora and was protected by a double wall from invasion on the land side in fact it was in time enclosed entirely within thirteen miles of stout wall the lower portion of this triangular area a vast domain of more than half a million square yards sloping gradually to the silver shores of the sea of marmora was reserved for the imperial palaces and gardens running parallel with the imperial palace to the north was the hippodrome into which the story of the empresses will repeatedly take us like the great circus at rome on the model of which it was built it was the most commanding and venerated institution of the frivolous people its spacious long-drawn arena was flanked by tiers of seats which could accommodate tens of thousands of people some authorities say a hundred thousand people a lofty imperial gallery the cathisma surveyed the races and the spectators from the northeastern end and a great purple awning gave protection from the burning sun beyond the hippodrome and the palace was the chief square of the city the augustium which corresponded to the old forum at rome or the agora at athens under the shelter of the double colonnade which surrounded it the idlers of constantinople held their endless fiery discussions of the last chariot race the last heresy or the last revolution the studious bargained for books the amorous made traffic in love it was the heart of the city on the south side of it was the great gate of the palace on the north side the church or cathedral of saint sophia the senate house faced it on the east 
and from its western side ran the main street of constantinople the mees or middle street lined with colonnades which passed more or less continuously along the central ridge of the triangular area which the city occupied a city was in those days and for many a century afterwards a palace and a cathedral we can only say of the million citizens that they were packed into the spaces not occupied by church or state especially in the region between the mees and the golden horn where fire and pestilence periodically fed on their crowded tenements with the palace we need a closer acquaintance Verena would be familiar with the massive iron gate on the south side of the square through which, as the emperor rode in, one might catch a glimpse of the great bronze door of the palace. Through this gate the obscure woman of the people was now borne on her litter to be crowned mistress of the world. The front part of the palace was burned by the people in 532, but we may assume that it had the general plan of the later structure, which experts have reconstructed for us. The door led into a spacious hall, known as the Chalk, on account of its bronze roof, which was richly adorned with statues, marbles, and mosaics. Constantine had despoiled the world to enrich his palace and city, and this entrance hall had a great store of treasures. Crossing the hall, one entered the apartments of the troops who guarded the palace, and whose spacious quarters formed an immense and formidable approach to the imperial palace. More than three thousand selected troops, divided into three classes, formed this imperial bodyguard and we shall more than once find their halls swimming with blood as some frantic mob or adventurous usurper seeks to penetrate to the palace the palace grounds were of course surrounded by lofty and unscalable walls verena would pass first through the lines of the scholarians whose golden shields and lances and gold helmets surmounted with red aigrettes would form a glittering corridor Ascending the marble steps at the far end of their hall, the purple curtains being drawn aside, she would pass between the excubitors, a regiment of powerful warriors with two-edged axes, and the candidates, or white-robed troops, gleaming with gold, the second and third lines of defense. At the end of these palatial barracks, three ivory-plated doors, hung with curtains of purple silk, opened into the consistorium a large hall lined with marble and mosaic in the floor of which were set porphyry slabs to indicate the successive spots where even kings must thrice prostrate themselves before approaching to kiss the feet of leo the isaurian a throne covered with purple and heavily laden with gold and jewels was raised under a golden dome at the upper end of the room three pairs of steps and three bronze doors for this wondrously elevated peasant and his obscure wife must not pass through the same door as ordinary mortals then led to an unroofed terrace lined with columns and precious statues on one side of which was the chapel of the saviour and on the other the ancient gold-roofed banquet-room then at length verena would find herself probably for the first time before the door of the palace proper or the main palace daphne 
passing between the crowds of stewards secretaries domestic officers and great ladies with masses of subordinate servants behind all bent in profound reverence she would enter by the bronze doors into the augustias or vestibule of the palace a hall crowded with choice bronze and marble statues and mosaics fresh legions of servants the population of the palace must have been more than five thousand even at this early date and groups of pale eunuchs now crowded to do homage and the fortunate woman surrendered herself to her tear women to don the gold-cloth tunic the purple mantle and the heavy jewellery of an empress the coronation would probably take place in the church of st stephen within the palace and it seems that verena and leo then crossed the gardens and terraces to receive the homage of the senators and nobles in the outlying palace of magnora we know it at a later date as a vast hall lined with colored marbles from the most famous quarries of the world its floors strewn thick with roses its wonders lit by fourteen massive silver lamps which hung from heavy chains of silvered bronze between its marble columns but the wonderful golden sparrows which piped their mechanical notes on golden trees and the golden lions which lashed their tails and roared before the throne and the organs of silver and gold belong to a later date in byzantine history from magnora the royal procession returned to daphne and mounted the spiral stair which led to the royal lodge with a small palace in its rear overlooking the hippodrome there the men of constantinople rang out their greek cry of many years to the rustic tribune and his wife who had so suddenly been lifted to this giddy height and were no doubt rewarded with chariot races the coronation day would end as was usual with a banquet in the triclinon a dining hall in the space between the apartments of the guards and the palace proper its lofty roof was of gold and on its nineteen purple draped tables only golden vessels were set some of them at least at a later date were so heavy that they had to be lifted from their purple chariots to the table by machinery and after such a banquet as only the palace could command amidst some two hundred of the highest nobles of the greatest empire in the world verena would retire to her ivory or silver couch to brood over this prodigious turn of the wheel of her fortune we shall find numbers of equally romantic elevations and just as many tragic falls from splendor to obscurity in the long story of the byzantine empresses unfortunately the coronation does not yet bring verena plainly before us and we must pass the seventeen years of her husband's reign almost in silence to explain this obscurity it is not enough to say that it was the custom of the byzantine court to keep its women in seclusion as long as the stream of imperial life flowed evenly they were generally content to idle the sunny hours behind the thick hedge of eunuchs and maids in some sequestered palace or other in the vast gardens where many fountains and the soft breath of the sea and leafy groves cooled the air 
they did not even feel the exclusion of women from the tense sensations of the hippodrome for one could witness the thrilling races from the windows in the upper gallery of the church of st stephen but we shall see speedily enough that this ceremonious seclusion no more intimidated the imperial women when they were imperial from playing their part in public life than the pomp and display of the palace intimidated the people of constantinople from talking to their monarch when occasion arose as if he were a village chief verena remained quiet and obscure because life flowed evenly and she had no cause to interfere with its course the promptness with which she sought or accepted consolation after the death of her husband does not suggest that she was very deeply devoted to leo he was however a shrewd and strong man though rough and uncultivated and he seems to have left little room for his wife's interference the empress's quarters in the palace or assemblage of palaces are very imperfectly known to us Daphne itself, the original palace, to which later emperors would raise stupendous rivals, cannot have had very numerous apartments. It would assuredly not be possible to hide a bishop there for years, as the Empress Theodora afterwards hid a bishop in her apartments. To say nothing of the subterraneous dungeons which Theodora is said to have filled with her prisoners but there were several detached palaces in the grounds and no doubt the empress had the use of one of these standing in its own gardens and groves and protected by its army of eunuchs verena had had one daughter ariadne before her elevation to the throne a few years afterwards she again gave promise of motherhood and adjourned for delivery as custom demanded to the porphyra palace by the sea a small square mansion whose walls were lined with red white-spotted porphyry but it was another girl leontia that she brought into the world and who lay beside her under the sheets of gold cloth to receive the homage of the notabilities many years of this placid existence pass before we catch another glimpse of verena the legendary life of st daniel stilites the emulator or successor of the famous simeon of the pillar says that the prayers of the holy dweller on a column procured for the empress a boy in four sixty two but the effectiveness of his prayers seems to have been limited as no such child has found its way into serious history leo was now aging and the question of the succession must have been keenly discussed it is at this point that verena who seemed doomed to pass again into obscurity begins to reveal her personality asper and his son still seemed to dominate constantinople but their power was being silently undermined leo was filling the palace and the army with his own compatriots and a conflict impended between the isaurians and goths between leo and asper amongst these isaurians a young man named trascalicius or something approaching it for the greeks make sad work of the asiatic names won the favour of leo and approached nearer to the throne the orthodox chroniclers are severe on trascalicius and depict him as a veritable pan dark ugly hairy ungainly heavy-footed and ignorant 
the Asaurians were not a handsome race, nor had they the least ambition to adopt the culture of the Greeks. Yet the portrait is probably overdrawn. Trescalicius seems to have been a robust, sullen, illiterate, intriguing young man, with no apparent grace of body or character. But Leo was minded to marry him to Ariadne, and thus mark him for the throne. Verena apparently desired the succession of her brother, Basiliscus, and as a vast fleet of more than a thousand vessels was about to be sent to wrest Roman Africa from the Vandals, she obtained the command of it for him. Verena could watch from the palace gardens the sailing of the great armada which was to win the purple for her brother and in a few weeks a fugitive vessel returned with the terrible news that the expedition had failed, the navy had been burned, and the great army of a hundred thousand men sunk or scattered by Genseric. Basiliscus had fled shamefully at the first shock, and had retired to hide his disgrace and private life at Heraclea in Thrace. It was the turn of Trascalicius, his name was changed to Zeno, and he was married to Ariadne, and promoted to the highest honours. Verena had now to resign herself to a hope that she would share the power with Zeno and her daughter. But the struggle of Isaurians and Goths had first to be settled, and the settlement interests us. In less than two years the struggle ended with a victory of the Isaurians a victory that has inscribed the name of the emperor in the chronicles as Leo the Butcher. We do not know the course of the quarrel, but one day in the year 471 the marble and bronze palace rang with the clash of swords. Asper and his eldest son were cut to pieces by the eunuchs within the palace. No doubt Verena and her family had their boats moored at the foot of the garden, as we shall find others doing but the terrible axes of the excubitors and the long swords of the candidates held back the tide of Goths and covered the marble floors with their corpses. The Asaurians were masters of the Roman Empire. Leo died three years afterwards. It is said that he wished to crown Zeno before he died, but that the people were bitterly opposed to it. He had, therefore, in order to secure the succession, associated his infant, or boyish grandson Leo, with his imperial power, and had died shortly afterwards. The mother and grandmother now came to an agreement with Zeno, and when the father came to do humble homage to his imperial child, the boy, prompted by Ariadne and Verena, put the crown on the father's head, and the court applauded the succession of the emperor Zeno. The sickly child died nine months afterwards, November 474, leaving Zeno in sole possession of the throne. Here begin the adventures of Verena, and at length her virile character is revealed to us. Her second daughter, Leontia, was married to a son of the western emperor Anthemius. It was the period of ephemeral emperors that preceded the extinction of the western empire, and a niece of hers was wedded to the western emperor Julius Nepos, though the latter connection soon proved its tragic futility the emperor fleeing from Ravenna and falling by the hand of a bishop a few months after coronation. 
while promoting this apparent scheme for the reunion of the roman empire verena began to assert her personality more vigorously at constantinople she still lived in the palace and seems gradually to have won its officers as venal and corrupt a body as ever adorned a court the works of contemporary greek historians survive only in tantalizing fragments or summaries or they would undoubtedly furnish a remarkable picture of byzantine life in the next ten years when three empresses occupied the stage we can but piece together with caution the fragments we find in the chronicles and endeavor to deduce the character of the empresses from their actions verena now had a notorious lover named patricius and was eager to set him on the throne instead of zeno her daughter ariadne a commonplace docile woman clung to her husband and the palace divided into two hostile parties and awaited the result it is piquant to remember that constantinople was at the time an intensely religious city its patriarch overshadowed those of alexandria and rome its populace divided its interest almost equally between chariot racing vice and the suppression of heresy and to its great church of st sophia or to the numerous chapels within the area of the palace were conducted with splendor the important relics which were constantly being found in palestine but the frivolous citizens ignored the practical enjoyments of their religion until the periodical fire or plague or earthquake threw them into a spasm of repentance and the population of the palace seemed to hold themselves entirely dispensed from such common laws verena at least knew neither weakness nor scruple in the pursuit of her ambition End of section 1